It was March the 15th of this year that uh, people all over the greater Miami area got in their cars and began the commute to their places of business or their schools or their daily life and whatever that was going to be for them that day. But on that day in the middle of March, six people got in their cars for the last time because it was on their commute to school that they found their way close to the Florida International University campus. And as they made their way through and many of them stopped at a stoplight and others moving through, the brand new pedestrian bridge that was being built to connect a residential, student residential area with the campus, an instant bridge, it was called, suddenly collapsed onto six different people. They lost their lives that day. It's, a, it's an interesting study if you go and read some of the reports of that. But I was struck with this quote that we get from the president of that university, President Mark Rosenberg, who said before that bridge collapsed and those people were killed, he said this, and I quote, Florida International University is about building bridges and student safety. This project accomplishes our mission beautifully. Until it didn't. Isn't it ironic that a bridge that was intended to enhance safety suddenly became something that shattered the lives of numerous families and took the lives of some people? As a church, and as we get serious and move into the next part of our church life, into the days ahead as we build on the future. Uh, excuse me, build on the past and look towards the future and build into the future as we seek to be what God has called us all to be, which are bridges that connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we should be very careful to show you some things about Jesus himself and about the people that he surrounded himself with. We come to this passage. Well, actually, it's three passages today, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, and Mark chapter 3. Not all of any of those, but a little piece of each of those. And as we come to this time, what I want us to recognize is how Jesus was very strategic in various ways. Now, today we're going to look at one part of his strategy. And as we go to talk about building bridges, there are strategies that we need to develop and some that we need to just kind of settle into. Anytime you try to be strategic about something, you need to figure out where you're trying to go. And what, what methods you're going to use to get there. But one of the things that we need to know when it comes to building bridges is we need the right people. So let's see what Jesus, the ultimate bridge builder himself, teaches us about that. Today we focus on personnel. And as we come to look at the strategy that Jesus employed relative to personnel, we start with his choice of disciples. I don't know if you've ever done a study of the disciples. It's an interesting study, actually, because part of what you get with these guys are some rough-and-tumble, kind of raw guys, and then you get a lot of mis... Excuse me, not misinformation, just lack of information. Now, I could take you through some of the historical uh, background stuff that we know about the disciples, but it would take me... Well, I just finished, as a matter of fact. 
And we know a little bit about a few of these guys, but most of them we don't know much about. I can go back into church history and I can pull out all of the, the well, it could have been this and it might have been that. And, you know, 400, 500 years later, people were saying, well, it was this, nothing in between. It just all of a sudden showed up. That it, so I'm going to avoid the temptation to try to dig in on each one of these guys and let's just take a few lessons from Jesus and his dealings with them and why he chose them. We start with Mark chapter 1. In verses 16 through 20, Jesus picks two sets of brothers. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. If you go over with me a little bit further, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 17, we find the calling of the next guy. I don't want us to lose the reality of what we just saw that we, we find these two sets of brothers, and we might think, I don't know how you feel about fishermen. I've known some fishermen through the years. Matter of fact, I had the opportunity to stay at a deacon's house at a church down along the coast. I was doing a revival for them, and I stayed with this guy, and he owned about six shrimp boats. And let me just say to you, that was the best shrimp I ever ate in my life, straight off of the boat. He was a great guy. But in my dealings with him, I dealt with some of the guys who worked for him. You know what? They're a little rough and tumble. Their language was probably not something that I should repeat from the pulpit. Does that connect pretty well for you? I don't know how you feel about fishermen. But Jesus went to two sets of brothers, both of whom fit the mold. Professional fishermen. And at least one set of those were professional businessmen, successful businessmen. We know that because in verse 20, it says that those two brothers left their father in the boat and the hired servants. These guys were a little more polished than what we might sometimes want to give them credit for being. But now we jump to a different kind of polished. Because in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13... We get a different guy. I read now verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we'll come back to him in a little while before this is all said and done. But here's what we find as we come to this guy named Levi. Other places we'll find that he's referred to as Matthew. And scholars are pretty close to unanimous in saying it's one and the same. Here's not a fisherman. Here's a government agent working for the Romans, either directly or indirectly, 
He wasn't a fisherman at all. He was an accountant. Interesting, this group that Jesus is putting together, almost halfway into the formation of these 12 disciple group, Jesus is on either end of the spectrum, it seems. What's he doing? What's he thinking? What is his intent with all of this? What is his strategy? You know that some scholars, I, I, I find this interesting, uh, especially when they push this on to Jesus, but some scholars tell us that the reason that Jesus picked these people who were on the fringes of society is because it's the best he could get. That he couldn't go to the establishment and get people because none of them would go with this upstart young preacher who would become a miracle worker. I find that intriguing and a little ridiculous that people would say that. We're not really finished looking at these guys, so let me take you one last jump, if you will. We go into chapter 3, and beginning in verse 13 and following, we find now the list of these disciples. And as we come through the end of the list, we'll talk a little bit about what Jesus' strategy was. Here's what we find beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. And now we have the list. Starts with the ones that are most famous to us today, and he moves his way through to one who is probably the most famous, not in a good way. Verse 16, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus pulled to himself. These were the 12 strategic choices Jesus made as to who would be the ones that he would surround himself with. Why did Jesus choose those guys? I talked about the fishermen and also talked about Matthew or Levi. Those guys, and most of these guys, as a matter of fact, came from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee in the Capernaum region. That was kind of the region where Jesus kicked off his ministry, spent most of his time there. But this guy, Judas Iscariot, let's talk about him for just a second, because Judas Iscariot, literally Judas from Kariot, which was a town in southern part of Judah. And if you were to go look at your maps at some point, you won't, probably won't find that town there necessarily, but look at the map of Palestine in the New Testament times and the, the territory of Judah, and especially the southern part of the territory of Judah, was way south. It was below Jerusalem, that particular region was. And so what you find is Jesus picks these guys, most of whom are from upper part around the Sea of Galilee and their culture, and he inserts this guy who's from the southern part. He's not part of their culture at all. As a matter of fact, the way of life between those two sets would have been markedly different. Why did Jesus get this different, diverse group of people and pull them together? Why did he choose these guys? I think it's a question. Many of you may be sitting there going, are you really going to preach a sermon on these 12 disciples we don't know anything about? And the answer is only another half. I'm already halfway through. 
why did he do this? I would suggest to you that we have ample biblical basis for saying that Jesus chose this diverse group of disciples because he was being strategic to the mission. If you go back to chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, the verses immediately before the calling of those first disciples, here's what we find. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he immediately turns and begins to form this group that would be his disciples. It is a strategic move. It is a strategic move to choose these guys who over the course of the next three years, roughly, he will pour himself into and he will pass on to them the same mission that he had, which is to give to people and connect with people with the love and the life that only God could give through him. We find numerous places throughout the Gospels where Jesus takes that message of salvation, the gospel, the good news, and he pushes it into the lives of his disciples, and he says, now get out there and tell people. Here's the strategic part of that. If Jesus had only picked a group of fishermen to be his disciples, he would have saturated the fishermen pool of people. But by choosing a tax collector... The good news goes out from him into Levi or Matthew and into that group of people. The reason I read that whole little section there where we find Matthew or Levi taking Jesus, where did he take him? He took him to his home. And who did he invite to the party? A bunch of sinners. That's where preachers love to hang out with all the, all the sinners, Preachers get fired for hanging out with a lot of sinners. Jesus went to Matthew. Matthew took him to his home. Matthew took him to his friends. And just like that, the pool got bigger. I would suggest to you that that strategic choice was tied to having a successful mission. Jesus goes to the party. They get a full taste of who he is. It's interesting that those sinners, the tax collectors and the, that group of people with Matthew, they loved Jesus. The ones who couldn't stand him were the religious people. It's a strategic move. And as it comes to us in this day and in this place, as we come to seek to be strategic in what we do as far as building bridges into our community, into the lives of people, to connect them with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we need to be strategic in doing that. And that leads me to say this, especially as we look at the diversity of this group of disciples. Our church is blessed. You know that every time we come to church here on Sunday mornings, the world comes to church here. Here's what I mean by that. I don't want you looking around right now because some people might be embarrassed by that. But here's what I see when I stand up here to preach. Here's what I know to be true of our church. The world comes to church here on any given Sunday. We have people from Asia. We have people from Africa. We have people from Latin America. 
We have people even from North America, even as far north, or at least people who have ties to Canada. I didn't even know they had Christians in Canada. That's a shot at our youth minister in case you don't know. He's, he keeps telling me he's not from Canada, but he sure looks like he's from Canada. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. The world comes to church here. I love that about us. We have people from the Middle East, all over the world, who come to church here with us and we worship together. We are a diverse congregation. We have a nice cross-section. But let's ask this question of ourselves. What do we do with that? Do we just sit back and pat each other on the back and say, yeah, we, we have done a good job in being diverse? Or is it possible that that diversity that we share here positions us to take and build bridges into far-reaching places. I, we could go off of the nationality part of this and go to our socioeconomic settings. Because when we come to church on Sunday, we have the full spectrum, or pretty close to the full spectrum here, socioeconomically speaking. We are diverse but the, the challenge for us is, what do we do with our diversity? There would be those, even in Baptist circles, who would say to us, you ought to feel good about that. Matter of fact, I, we have those. I've been asked to go and help do uh, some kind of a, a presentation at one of our seminaries because we are so diverse here, they want to know, how'd you do that? And my answer to them was, I didn't do that. I just get to pastor that church. Our church is diverse in a lot of ways that a lot of churches are not. People want to know how you pull that off. I'm not so concerned about how we pull that off. I'm concerned about what do we do with that. We should be proud of the diversity that we have, but it's got to count for something other than we look good when we come together. I would suggest to you that the strategic move for us is to take that part of who we are and look outward now and say, okay, so what pieces of our community might be represented as we step out and build bridges? It's an interesting concept, I think. We should expand our diversity, I suppose is a good way to say it. That's the first point. Actually, I wanted to tell you I have three different things that we pull from what Jesus did here. Here's the first one. Building effective bridges requires strategic choices. The second one that I want to point you, you, point you to is that, that um, okay, this one grows out of the first one. The second one is that our strategy must include managing internal dynamics. Here's a great thing about these disciples. Uh, they were so diverse that it, it created immediate friction, or at least the possibility of immediate friction. That happens, problems surface when we get strategic about building bridges. Heaven is going to be an incredible place. Do you believe that? Oh, my goodness. Just say yes, whether you believe it or not. It's true. Okay? Heaven is going to be an incredible place. It is going to be full of peace. 
but we're not in heaven yet. And every church that I know anything about would have a testimony either current or in the past that says, you know, we have our friction around here from time to time. It's what happens when churches start reaching and start building bridges, especially when we understand that the diversity that we have and we start building into those areas puts a little pressure in places. So one of the things we know is that as we build bridges, we better be ready to handle the internal dynamics that come with that. Here's where I find this in this passage, or in these guys especially. Jesus chose, I think it might be why Jesus, well, let me, I'll just, I'm running out of time, so let me cut through some of that. I, I believe that Jesus intentionally chose guys that would create friction inside the group. I say that because one of the first ones, Mark says the, the fifth one, the second group one, group two were fishermen brothers. Uh, by the way, any of you have brothers? Any friction between you and your brothers? See, I've had this with my brother for a long time. Let me just tell you a few things about my brother. Now, now we have great relationship, but you know, when I was younger, my parents would not let us fight. The reason is because mom knew that he would kill me if he had the chance. So they wouldn't let us fight, but we had our share of disagreements and friction. And the reason we did is because he was always wrong about stuff. (laughs) So let's not, I mean, it's not flagrantly stated here that we have problems between these brothers, but all of us who have brothers, smart enough to know, especially ones you work with, that's a whole nother discussion, but you know that there's struggles there. And Jesus chose brothers, family members. But I want to get to the second set because one of the things that we have here is this tax collector named Matthew. Now, you know the way tax collection worked for them. The Roman government would set a quota, and they would put it out for bids, and so anybody who took the bid had to at least match that quota that they had. But anything beyond that quota, they could keep. So they had their ability to go to people and say, here's what your tax is, even though it probably usually was inflated from what the government said they had to turn in. Here's two parts of that that caused people to really hate these these guys. The first one is that they're taking advantage of them. The second one is that they're working for the occupying forces of the Roman government. These tax collectors weren't all that popular when you get right down to it. And then as we read through that list in Mark 3, we came across this guy named Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was in first century Jewish life? It was a guy who hated the Roman government and their occupation of Israeli people, what we would call Israeli people today. Here's the friction. You got a guy who works for the government, taking money, and a guy who hates the government. And they're together, chosen by Jesus. We should know that there will be many instances of friction when a church decides to do what God called them to do. 
When a church decides to be faithful to the calling that we have, to the vision, to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we should know that there will be personality conflicts and agenda struggles that come with that. We just know that happens. How do we deal with that? What is it that we use? Here's what I want you to see. Jesus always brings them back to the vision, to the mission. You see, here's my experience with churches. When a church gets to the point where they're not really moving forward, there is this pent-up energy that we have. In many circles, we, we know that this is called sideways energy. Energy is being expended. It's just not going anywhere. And so what should be pushing us forward, we start using to fight internal battles. I served a church at one time where I felt like I was more of a referee than a pastor. Part of what we get comes back to this statement I heard not too long ago. Actually, I read it. Todd Bolsinger has an incredible book on leadership called Canoeing the Mountains. And he quotes somebody else. Many of you probably heard this. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know what that means in terms we're talking about here? It's, it's those internal things about how a people are that keep us from being strategic and going where we need to go. We can be strategic, but when our strategy begins to rub up against and cause friction internally, culture wins and strategy dies. Jesus combated that, and we must combat that by coming back to the mission. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I'll read just verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how we manage the conflict or the friction that we know comes as we launch out. Here's the third thing, and I'll close. Strategic bridge building keeps Jesus at the center. I said this when we started. Let me reiterate it again. Jesus is the ultimate bridge builder. Nobody built or builds bridges to people like Jesus did and does. And one of the things that we find Jesus doing is pulling these 12 diverse guys to himself. And he begins to teach them to be bridge builders. He pours himself into them. That's the strategy that he follows here. His calling, his, uh, his whole life was his reason for coming to earth was so that he might pass on and share and reach out to let people know the love of God and the life that only God could give, and he only gives it through Jesus. And Jesus embraced that, but he also pulled these 12 guys together and taught them that mission. Here's where we're going. And so for them and for us, it's always about following his lead. Jesus is the master teacher. We have a church full of educators, professional, administration people, or retired administration and school systems. We have a church full of people who get the teaching process. I would challenge you all who know teaching professionally to go and study Jesus, the teacher. (laughs) 
Many times I read through and I see something, I went, well, there's classes in session for those disciples right there. For those who are among us who are the auditory kind of learners, put yourself in the crowd on the side of a hill when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 the dense package of what life with him looks like. Some of us are not auditory listener, uh, uh, hear, uh, learners. Those are the ones who are going, please just quit talking and let me go. We see and we learn. We, we are involved and we learn. So Jesus had a few class and sessions moment for that crowd also. He says to his disciples one evening after quite a day, you can go back and read this, but he says, y'all get in the boat and go to the other side. I'll see you in a little bit. And then somewhere in the middle of the night, there's a storm out there. And so Jesus decides that his disciples need him. So you know what he did? He just started walking across the water to get to them. If you happen to be a visual learner, there's a lesson for you in that. Jesus was the master teacher. He still is. We find him consistently teaching them. That's why he pulled them to himself. So if we are to be strategic in our bridge building, we must recognize that life is a laboratory for us. And we need to know about the people to whom we build bridges. We need to know how they think. We need to know how to best reach them. We need to understand trends. There's a lot of education that we need going forward. We build on what we know, and we move into a future that we don't really know much about except that Jesus is as Lord of the future as he is today. And so Jesus always at the center. Jesus the teacher always drawing us in and equipping us for the task that we have. On that day in Miami, earlier this year, a group of people got up and left their homes expecting just another ordinary day. Everything changed for them and their families that day because a bridge didn't work the way it was supposed to. So in this formative period for us as a church, as we embrace a vision, and then figure out how do we go forward. Jesus at the center, strategic, diverse, moving into a future where Jesus is still Lord. Let's pray. My question to you is, where is Jesus in your life today? Do you know him or do you just know about him? If you don't know him personally, we invite you to that relationship. It involves acknowledging that he is God and you're not. It involves acknowledging sin that says, I've lived for myself. I've not been who I'm called to be, who God made me to be. It involves accepting the gift of life that he gives. If you've never done that, today is a great day. It is the day for you to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms you. He is the bridge to the life that God has for you. And we invite you to that today. Maybe you're part of this congregation. Maybe haven't joined, you want to join? Been thinking about joining? Maybe today's the day we would love to have you come and be part formally of this church. Every one of us who call on Christ as our Savior is a bridge builder. 
Are you strategic in your own personal life as it relates to sharing Jesus with the people that God has put around you? As a church, today we make a renewed commitment to be strategic for the cause of Christ as we move into an uncertain future. So, Father, use this time now as our prayer in Jesus' name to change lives, to change the way we think, to change the way we live, to transform us to the calling that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.